morning, friends. Let me invite you to open your copy of the Word to Jude, second to the last book of the Bible, uh, right before Revelation. We will today be in verse, verses 3 and 4, only one chapter, Jude, of course, short little book. So the theme that we'll see this morning in the book of Jude is contending for the faith. I don't know how you feel about contending for the faith. It might make you a little nervous. Uh, so Ligonier has recently published a very helpful little book called A Field Guide on False Teaching. Small little manual. You can pick it up from them. You can get it on Amazon. I have three copies uh, with me this morning, and if you're interested in Looking at the table of context, my copy is open, and you can look at all the things that it covers, some of the major cults and world religions, gives a brief summary of them, and help you in contending for the faith and speaking to people who share those faiths or who uh, follow those faiths. But So come take a look at that if you're interested, a field guide on false teaching. Our passage, again, 3 and 4 of Jude, uh, let me read our portion of the word this morning, and uh, we'll continue on. Hear the word of God. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God in the sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the holy and inspired and inerrant Word of God. May He bless this and strengthen us with it. And let me again pray briefly as we begin. Spirit of God, come and Uh, descend upon us afresh this morning and give us seeing eyes and hearing ears. Quicken us, uh, Lord, uh, and enable us to hear. Uh, Quicken me, uh, enable me to preach. Uh, Press the truth to our hearts, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So when when I say this phrase, contending for the faith, what comes to mind? Maybe perhaps you think of a A heroic figure like uh, Martin Luther, a young Martin Luther here nailing his 95 theses to the uh, front door of the church at Wittenberg. Uh, Despite his quirks and faults, and Martin Luther had many, God used him to make a heroic stand against the Roman Catholic Church in the Protestant Reformation. You and I are seated here this morning Uh, in large part because of what Martin Luther did, uh, standing against the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church and essentially recovering the gospel for Western Europe. Contending for the faith might bring to mind some other people that you might think of, people who actually gave their lives uh, for the truth of the gospel and the cross of Christ, gave their lives to spread the news of his atoning death. You might think uh, of historical figures from England's history, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, 
put to death by Queen Mary in 1555 and, and many others of that era. You might think of uh, the five men who were killed in Ecuador in 1956 who gave their lives to carry the message of Christ to an Indian tribe into the jungle of Ecuador. You might think of someone even more recent than that. You might think of somebody like Todd Friel when you think of contending for the faith who, who visits college campuses and enters into conversations with, with unsafe uh, college students and talks about the gospel. You might think of John MacArthur who recently made headlines taking a stand against his local government as they uh, withstood the uh, local government's efforts to close them down during COVID-19. Uh, uh, men like that or, or maybe who come to mind when you hear this phrase, contending for the faith, any one of those, but who you probably don't think of when I say that phrase is yourself. And many of you have already pulled down the, the shades and have checked out well, whatever this is about, it's not about me because I'm not called to contend for the faith. Uh, I mean, what, what could I possibly do to contend for the faith against, against uh, the local, the state, or even the federal government? Well, friend, the threat to our faith doesn't always come from outside the church. I mean, we read in the New Testament that sometimes it did, but I've heard Dr. R.C. Sproul say on more than one occasion that the greatest threat to the church will come from inside the church. It's something we perhaps don't think about. And consider his words, the greatest threat to the church will probably come from within the church itself. That's the kind of threat Jude is writing about in his short letter. Not a threat from the Roman government, but a threat from inside the church. So, so a better question uh, for us to ask today is not if you could contend for the faith against the federal government, but could you contend for the faith against the person sitting in front of you or the person sitting behind you? Certainly God does raise up people throughout history to contend for the faith like people such as, as uh, uh, Martin Luther, uh, to contend for the faith in the public spotlight, but, but Jude is not written to those. It's not even written to the elders of a church. It's written to the everyday Christian, the man in the pew, so to speak, man or woman in the pew, I should quickly add, the stay-at-home mom, the homeschool mom, uh, to those who occupy a cubicle in an office building, to, to school teachers, public and private, to, to students who sit in front of those school teachers. Contending for the faith doesn't have to take place in front of a camera to be genuine or, or to make the headlines for it to be real. God is calling all of us to contend for the faith in whatever setting he's placed, his, uh, placed us. So, if that's true, and I assure you it is true, what goes into contending for the faith? And I hope today to take some of the mystique out of that phrase, 
to remove some of the aura and uh, some of the stars we might think of when it comes to contending for the faith, to, to bring it down to the everyday, to take it out of the spotlight and bring it down to the sideline. And, and whether or not you have Martin Luther's courage or uh, whether or not you are uh, the focus and attention of a queen, of a nation, or whether you appear in the headlines or not, what goes in to contending for the faith? Well, contending for the faith consists of three components. In verses 3 and 4, Jude gives us three components of contending for the faith. And the first component that we encounter is the motivation in contending for the faith. What drives us? What compels us? What energizes us to contend for the faith? And in this first half of verse 3, Jude expresses his, his love. Uh, we see that his love for the church is what motivates uh, contending for the faith. And he expresses his love for the church in three terms. The first term he uses is beloved. Uh, uh, through beloved in verse 3, which is how it begins, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our, com our common salvation. Perhaps your version might say, dear friends, uh, but that's putting it far too mildly. The, the, the sense of it is my dear loved ones or to those I deeply cherish. It, it, it conveys his heartfelt affection, his concern for God's people. Again, we don't know where they're located. Uh, we're not given any names in particular right here. Uh, but wherever they are, wherever they lo they're located, he has a deep and a profound love for them. And, and he'll use this phrase, beloved, several times uh, in his short letter. This is not to be confused with sentimentality. He's not saying, I've got the warm fuzzies for you. Uh, he has a vital interest in their spiritual well-being, and, and he expresses this through this, this word, beloved. Well, there's another term he uses, and he goes on in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write. He expresses his love um, secondly through this term necessary. It, it carries the idea of something pressing down on you, something compressing you. See, he intended to write a completely different letter uh, about the, the salvation that, that he held in common with these beloved uh, believers, but it's like something interrupted him. He had received Word about false teachers infiltrating the church, and, and, and suddenly he was overwhelmed by this, this pressure to write a, a completely different letter. It's as though he had to snatch up a pen and, and jot this down at once because of the danger. His love wouldn't allow him to remain quiet while, while heresy erodes the truth and undermines the church. And so his love for them is expressed in this pressure 
uh, uh, to say something. He found it necessary to write this letter. Then going further in verse 3, look again. I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith. That describes an urgent appeal, that term appealing. It describes uh, 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 pleading. Uh, I beg you is the idea. Uh, this term was also used uh, to describe the way that a military leader and a commander would urge on his soldiers, uh, exhorting them to, to battle, urging them on. Uh, if you grew up with the King James Version, you might remember the word beseeching. It's a great word, isn't it? I beseech you. Use that around the house and see what happens. You put these terms together, uh, he calls them beloved, and he feels this great weight of, of the necessity of writing this. And so he writes in pleading tones uh, to contend for the faith. And his love for the church that he is expressing through these terms, really very similar to, to the way Paul spoke and wrote you might remember in Acts 20, he gathered with a group of elders uh, from the church at Ephesus. And as, as they're about to uh, break company for the last time, Paul, uh, in, his, in his words to them, he says, Therefore, uh, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Uh, think of uh, uh, think of the emotion behind uh, that description. Uh, Paul uh, said this to the churches in Galatia who were being led astray by false teachers. He said this uh, similar sentiment. My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Some of you can relate <laughs> intimately with this, and many of us men cannot. Uh, the emotional pain he felt uh, uh, as he read about his spiritual children straying, it, it, it distressed him. It's like having children. So vital that you see this motivation in uh, contending for the faith. Uh, I'm ahead of myself, excuse me. Uh, so important, crucial, because uh, contending for the faith is a very unpopular idea. Uh, some believe that contending for the faith is intolerant and judgmental. And you instantly resist the idea of contending for the faith. Who are we to suggest that someone's views of God, Jesus Christ and the Bible, are incorrect? But take note that, that contending for the faith is not about winning debates, public or private. It's not about 
proving that your view is orthodox or biblical. It's not learning about how to argue in a, in a convincing way. We contend for the faith driven and motivated by love. Pastor Rao, how is, how is it kind and loving to tell someone that what they believe is wrong and will put them in hell? I would simply ask you, how is it loving to say nothing? How is that love? If you really want to talk about love, you need to turn it around. Is it loving to let a friend go on thinking that there are many paths to God? Or is the most loving thing to tell them that Jesus Christ is the only way to God and that all other paths lead to eternal conscious torment? Is it loving to allow a friend who claims to be a follower of Christ to go on thinking they can live any way they want to? Or is the most loving thing to tell them that they're, what their lifestyle reveals, that they've really never put their faith in the atoning death of Jesus? I put it to you that the most loving thing we can do is to say something. We must abandon the notion that saying something is intolerant. We must jettison the idea that contending for the faith is unloving. It's really the most loving thing to do. One writer summed it up like this. Jude's words, implies, Jude's words imply the ongoing wrestling match that he wants us to become involved in. This will be unpopular because it is commonly assumed that since Christianity is a faith based on love, it can only say nice, comforting things. The evidence throughout the Bible is that being faithful to God's word means bringing hard, unpopular warnings as well as bright promises. An example of this uh, comes from a man named Peter Cartwright. He was uh, from the 1800s, a circuit-riding Methodist preacher and uncompromising man. And one Sunday morning when he arrived at one of the several churches he preached at, he, he was told that President Andrew Jackson was in the congregation. Old Hickory was there. Uh, and Andrew Jackson, very colorful president. And, and he was warned, Cartwright was, not to say anything out of line. When Cartwright stood to preach, he said, I understand that Andrew Jackson is here. I have been requested to be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he doesn't repent. <laughs> the congregation was shocked, of course, and wondered how the sitting president would respond and apparently Jackson took, took kindly to Cartwright and appreciated, uh, appreciated his courage. And he said, if I had a regiment of men like you, sir, I could whip the world. Of course, of course, certainly, of course there are precautions we need to take. 
Consider these words from 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men, and that doesn't mean that they were speaking in an angelic language. He's talking about great eloquence. If I speak in a very highfalutin way, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Uh, then Colossians 4, 6 cautions us. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And this specifically is uh, concerning speaking to those outside the church. Again, in Ephesians 4, we have this caution, rather speaking the truth in love. I knew someone whose motto was, how can the truth hurt you? A very unlikable fellow. <laughs> Speaking the truth in love. We contend for the faith not to be right. We contend for the faith uh, not to prove a point. Uh, we contend for the faith not out of pride or arrogance. We contend for the faith driven by love for those we're speaking to. We communicate graciously. Uh, this is the motivation in contending for the faith, uh, uh, this love that Jude expresses to the church, we, we contend for the faith in this way, driven by love for those we're speaking to. There's another component that he gives us, and that's the message that we contend for. First was the motivation that drives contending for the faith. And now the message we contend for, he's going to say four things about this message that we contend for. First of all, he's going to mention the command itself, God's command to contend. Uh, and we're in the middle of verse 3 again. Uh, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. That's a term, contend, is, is, it's often connected with an athletic contest. Uh, sometimes it's used to describe a, a military campaign. It means to, to struggle for something, to exercise great effort in a sport or great effort in battle. The term is epagonizo, and you hear in that Greek term, uh, the, the root of that term, the word agonize. It's where we get our English word agonize. So this word conveys the idea of great effort, uh, struggling to do something, and, and maybe even agonizing over something. And it's, it's in the present tense, and, and that means it's an ongoing effort. It's a continuous exertion. Uh, one scholar wrote, the, the defense of this faith will be continuous, costly, and even agonizing. And then listen to Charles Spurgeon say it, of course, like no one else. Let us, let us be banded together as one man. Let us contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. Let us pray with fervor. Let us live in holiness. Let us preach constantly and preach with fire. And let us so live that we may impress our age and leave our footprints on the sands of time. The first thing we see is uh, the command to contend, to exert ourselves in this. 
The second thing Jude goes on to say uh, is he mentions the content of the faith. Notice again, we're in verse 3 still. Uh, I, I found it necessary to write appealing to you could, to contend for, look at this now, the faith. So when faith is written like that with the word the in front of it, it's not talking about personal trust as in faith in Jesus Christ. It's referring to a body of belief, of truth, the faith. Uh, it refers to the content of what we believe as Christians, that Jesus Christ was the very Son of God, that he, was, that he died and, uh, for our sins on the cross, was buried and rose the third day, that he will return with power and great glory as well as a host of other things. The faith refers to the content of what you and I believe as followers of Christ. It refers to the objective truth contained in God's word. It's, it's what we believe in. And it's this body of truth that God calls you and me to exert ourselves for, to contend for, to, to even struggle for. We, we read this in our scripture reading. In the last time, some will depart from the faith. Paul talks about it in Philippians 1, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We contend for the faith as individual believers, and Paul instructs Timothy this way in, in 2 Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit uh, who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And we also contend for the faith as a body of believers. Uh, and he says in 1 Timothy, if I delay you may know how one ought to behave himself in the household of God, uh, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is the content, the faith, the truth revealed in the word of God, the Bible, the, the truth we hold to as followers of Christ. I want you to see a third, the completion of the faith. Notice uh, this body of truth contained in God's word is complete. And again, verse 3 says, uh, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It was completed in the New Testament era. Uh, and we do not look for God to reveal further truth to us through the centuries once for all communicates that this body of truth is final, that it is definite. The writer of the Hebrews said this uh, as well. He said in Hebrews chapter 1, he said in Hebrews chapter 1, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. 
God has spoken definitively and conclusively in the New Testament era through his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, and that communication is contained in the books of the Bible. Say, the last thing you want to hear me say on a Sunday morning is to stand up here and say, hey, I've discovered some, some new truth, everybody. You don't ever want to hear me or anyone standing in front of you with the Bible say, I've got some new truth for you. Leave! Get up and run! Or stone me, either way. And one of the simplest ways you contend for the faith is when you hear somebody on TV say, here's what God told me. Unless scripture immediately follows, turn to fail army or anything else. Or America's Funniest Video, stop watching that dude. Because God spoke once for all time. Now, he's constantly leading us by his spirit and directing us, uh, showing us how to put the word of God into practice and daily living. Of course, sometimes he does that in surprising ways. But he is not revealing new truth to anybody because it says that was once for all delivered. This is truth in its final form. We're not looking for, for anything new. And we don't listen to those who claim they received further revelation from God. And so we see thirdly, the third thing he says about this message is, is it's complete. Uh, uh, contend for the faith, uh, contend for the content of the faith, that is Scripture, and this Scripture is complete. This message is complete. It's final. And then finally, he talks about the communication of the faith here in verse 3 towards the end. He says, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's a very important term, delivered, uh, not in the modern sense of a delivery person, but, but it's talking about the, the, the handing down of a tradition. Some traditions can be bad. Uh, some traditions, Scripture, of course, are excellent. And he's talking about the Word of God handed down to believers from the apostles. He's talking about the apostolic record handed from Christ's apostles to the New Testament church. That's why all the New Testament books had to be connected or written by an apostle or, or his associate, uh, Mark, Luke. Uh, were associates. Jude, the associate of James, they all had an, a connection to an uh, apostle. Well, Pastor Rob, does that leave out the Old Testament? No, because they endorsed it, didn't they? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. And, and so Paul, therefore, includes the Old Testament in uh, God's authoritative writing. This is the truth handed down to us contained in scripture. And so this second component of uh, uh, 
Contending for the faith is the message we contend for. Uh, it's, it's something that deserves our best effort. It's the content of Scripture. Uh, it is a complete uh, 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 record. It's final. And it's been handed down to the church by the apostles. There's a Christian author. As a university student, he describes living in a boarding house. And he writes that downstairs uh, on the floor underneath him was a, was a retired music teacher. And he was uh, disabled, unable to leave his apartment and so every morning when he left his upstairs apartment, they would go through this kind of ritual. He'd come down the steps and he'd, he'd check on the elderly gentleman and ask him, say, what's the good news today? And this retired teacher would pick up his tuning fork and tap it on the side of his wheelchair and say, that's middle C. That's the middle note on a piano, by the way. That's middle C. It was middle C yesterday. It'll be middle C tomorrow. It'll be middle C a thousand years from now. The tenor upstairs sings flat. The piano across the hall is out of tune. But my friend, this is middle C. And like that man in his tuning fork, we too have something fixed and constant. And that is the message of God's word handed down to us from the apostles fixed for all time. This is our middle C. There's one final component in contending for the faith. And the third component is the men. This, of course, the men we contend against, the people we oppose. And Jude says four things about these men who we oppose. And the first thing that he writes about is their profession. Uh, look at verse 4 in Jude. He says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed. Now just stop and ask, how is that possible? How is that possible? That a false teacher could creep in unnoticed? And the answer is, uh, uh, is that they looked and sounded like everyone else. They professed to be part of Christ's church. They claimed to have trusted in the atoning death of Christ by all appearances. They seemed like the real deal. There was, an, you, well, you might be suspicious, that's, how, could that, how could that happen? I would remind you of another person in the New Testament who snuck into a group of Christ's followers and who also went completely unnoticed. His name was Judas Iscariot. If you remember in the upper room, when Jesus revealed that one of the 12 disciples would betray him, 11 of them had no idea who he was talking about. Is it me, Lord? They didn't all turn a sideways glance at Judas and said, I thought so. <laughs> a 
And even when Jesus told Judas to leave and go about his business, the other disciples were still clueless. Judas Iscariot and the certain people that Jude writes about reveal that we can't judge people by how they appear to us or even how they talk to us. Because Judas Iscariot and Jude's false teachers looked and sounded just like everyone. It was only later when their fruit was revealed, when the fruit could be seen, that their true identity came out. And Jesus describes this in Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. One writer said, although these people no doubt mouthed Christian phrases, quoted the Bible, and knew all the new songs, they were not to be taken at face value. I just want to stop and say, I have had more than one person buy me lunch and in gushing terms tell me how much they enjoyed my sermon the previous Sunday, only to prove later on that they didn't know Christ at all. So when people ask me out for lunch anymore, I'm kind of, you know. These men had a marvelous profession of faith in Christ. They looked and sounded like the real deal. But Jude goes on to talk about their prediction, not predictions they made, but what the Bible predicted about them, their presence and their final end were described long before this. Verse 4 continues, crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. What condemnation? He hasn't talked about a condemnation. Well, he's going to get to that in verse 5 in the verses following. He's going to bring up examples from the Old Testament of the kind of condemnation uh, that, we're talk that he's talking about. Uh, uh, one scholar says Jude is saying that the Bible speaks clearly on this question of false teachers, warning that there will always be opposition to biblical truths within churches. We see their prediction, and we'll get into that prediction as we go further into the book of Jude. What the, what the Old Testament says will happen to these kinds of people. Jude goes on to talk about their perversion. That's a word we're not, uh, we don't use much anymore because nothing in this day and age is perverted. And it needs to be abnormal, to be out of the ordinary. And these men are perverting the grace of God, transforming it, transposing it, changing the grace of God into a license to sin. We're still in verse 4, and we'll go on. It says, uh, designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Uh, first of all, it, he out of the gate calls them ungodly, and he means that they're not believers in Christ. Uh, but he says they have perverted the grace of our God into sensuality. 
Someone observed that false teachers generally tend, uh, uh, generally fall into one of two categories. Some add things to the gospel and some subtract things from the gospel. An example of false teachers who added things to the gospel were those in this era who taught about faith in Christ and keeping the law of Moses. We talked about this Wednesday night in, in men's Bible study. In the book of Philippians, there was a group of false teachers called Judaizers that added the law of Moses to the gospel. Not only uh, was faith in Christ required, observing the laws and the ceremonies of the old covenant was also necessary for salvation. So they added to the gospel. But these men that Jude is writing about are an example of false teachers who subtracted from the gospels this certain people. And, and not only are they ungodly, uh, not genuine Christians, whatever they may have said about faith in Christ they said nothing about Christ's call to holy living. That's what they subtracted. Sure, faith in Christ. And then you have freedom to live as you want. This is still, this is still proclaimed. You're justified by faith. You're standing with, with, with the Father as secure. So, hey, have at it. And in particular, uh, they use Christian freedom uh, to practice all kinds of sexual sin. That's what the word sensuality refers to. It's a, a broad term, uh, uh, loose living marked by sexuality and pleasure and, and greed for those things. Uh, one writer says it's hardly surprising that men accepted the indicative of pardon and forgot the imperative of holiness. So these false teachers subtracted from the gospel Christ's call to purity and holy living. We must not subtract this particular call from the true gospel. When Christ calls you as his Savior, he calls you to turn your back on, on sensuality and, and sensuous living. These men have perverted grace into license. Well, one more thing about these men is their posture. And by posture, I mean that they did not bow down to the lordship of Christ. Again, towards the very end of verse 4, it says, and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The word master is a, is a stronger term to describe sovereignty. This word is usually reserved for God the Father. And the word Lord that you see in this phrase is used of Jesus to, uh, to say that He is Yahweh. And so these men, the, the way the grammar is written, uh, the way Jude wrote this sentence, 
he is attributing both these names to God the Son, Jesus Christ. He is our only sovereign and God, Jesus Christ. And, and by this sensuous lifestyle, uh, by their license to sin, they are denying that Jesus has the authority and right to rule this part of their lives. It's like the men that Paul described to Titus. They profess to know God, but deny him by their works. That's their posture. They're, they're not bowed in submission to the lordship and the absolute sovereignty of, of Christ's commands. They instead are uh, bolt upright with their fist raised against heaven. These are the men that we contend against. We've seen how they profess to know Christ. We, we will see as we go further what the Old Testament predicts about them. How they, we've seen how they pervert grace into license in their posture of throwing off authority in the sovereignty of Jesus. This uh, next slide is uh, the ever-present cow, uh, uh, brown-headed cowbird that we see all over the place. Uh, if we haven't seen it already, we're about to see him. They used to come to my bird feeder all the time in great numbers. And while uh, the cowbird is very abundant in North America, uh, you will be hard put to ever find the nest of a brown-headed cowbird. And the reason is because brown-headed cowbirds lay their eggs in the nests of other birds. Uh, it says here in Illinois, for example, the, brown, uh, the little brown cowbird with its mink-colored head is a common sight, uh, but bird experts say you will not find one cowbird nest in the entire state. Uh, the cowbirds are prodigious egg layers. Each female commonly deposits 20 to 40 eggs in dozens of other nests each spring. Cowbird eggs usually hatch more quickly than the other birds' eggs, and the chicks grow more quickly. And because birds tend to feed the largest and loudest of their young, we all admit this is true. Uh, because of this, cowbirds get fed first. And they are usually the healthiest and have the best chance of survival. The host spends inordinate time and energy tending to the cowbird, and the cowbird is pushing other songbirds to the point of extinction. So this innocent-looking little critter, that fuzzy brown head, you know, like a felt cap or something, These certain people are, are in some ways very similar. They intrude into the nest of a local church. 
and they begin to make a, a huge racket with their false teaching and proclamations of free living and license and sensuality. And they push the truth. They push uh, the faith. Uh, what is genuine and what is reality. And they push it to the point of extinction by their loud cawing. This is the men, the kind of men we contend against those who make a lot of noise and push aside the truth of Scripture. So, you might not have the heroic faith of Martin Luther, at least you might not think you do, and boy, could never be burned at the stake like a Hugh Latimer, and you don't think you have the, the ability to think on your feet like Todd Friel does. I know I don't. Or you may not be a public figure like John MacArthur, but you don't need any of that to, to contend for the faith. Because Jude is written to everyday believers like you and like me. Again, stay-at-home moms, homeschooling moms, people who reside in a cubicle for most of the day, uh, school teacher, public and private. What goes into contending for the faith for them? Well, Jude says there are three things that are involved in, this, in these verses. There's the motivation to begin with. And this perhaps, I hope, will set many of us at ease. We don't do so to be right. We don't do so to be intolerant. We, we, we contend because of love for those we're talking to and love for truth. And that's what compels us to say something. No, son, that's not true. What you're watching on TV, that's not true. Or to a coworker, dude, that is just wrong. However you want to say it. Uh, and then the message we contend for is the truth of Scripture, Old and New Testaments, this, this word that's been delivered, handed down by the apostles. Once for all. And third, we attend, uh, contend against men like this, those who profess to know Jesus Christ, uh, but deny Him by their fruit. Those are the kind of men we contend against. Christ, as we move further into this book, I pray that you'd encourage us by your word to strive for the faith, to contend for the faith. Thank you for your indwelling spirit who enables us to do this. Thank you for your inerrant word that you have handed down to us through your apostles Jesus, strengthen our faith this morning through your word and through your spirit. Jesus, we pray in your precious name. Amen.